A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. The following on podcast is proudly sponsored by Barbados Tourism. Before we kick off the show, I just wanted to take a moment to remind you that the ICC Men's Cricket T20 World Cup Final is taking place in Barbados this summer. This, by default, gives all of my fellow cricket fanatics the perfect excuse to go and book a holiday to Barbados in June and experience firsthand the euphoric atmosphere at the Kensington Oval, the cricket mecca of the Caribbean. If the cricket alone isn't enough to tempt you, then let me be the one to remind you that a trip to Barbados can also include leisurely strolls along the breathtaking coastline, mouth-watering flavours of the world-class Bayesian cuisine, and, of course, plenty of rum. Head to visitbarbados.org forward slash cricket today to book the trip of a lifetime to Barbados, the best place to be a cricket fan. Hello and welcome to a very special edition of the following on podcast as we continue to bring you archived editions of the brilliant My Sporting Life. In this episode, TalkSport's Danny Kelly sitting down with the former Australian opening batsman Matthew Hayden to discuss his remarkable career in the game. We'll be re-releasing old editions of My Sporting Life every Friday here on Following On. Already re-released shows with Michael Holden, David Lloyd. So scroll back through the following on feed to find those episodes. But for now, we bring you My Sporting Life with the Australian great Matthew Hayden. Tonight, My Sporting Life features one of the greatest batsmen in the history of Test cricket, the Australian legend Matthew Hayden. And there it is. Century for Matthew Hayden. His 15th Test 100, his first in Perth. My Sporting Life on Talk Sport. Over the course of the next two hours, we'll hear how Matthew felt when he made a world record test score of 380. I just didn't really care. And I'd say that with all due respect as well. I had the attitude that I didn't. it didn't matter whether I was going to get out because I was scoring so freely that I was just in this, this massive ball of momentum that everything just pinged off the bat and even when I sort of thought oh, I might have mishit that I had it I had it the sense at least to think of which way is the wind coming and you know it ended up disappearing out of the ground it was that kind of touch and to win the ashes we wanted to take revenge on England because we'd been beat we weren't happy about being beat we, we believed that we were a better side um, but we just had to put it together both both as a partnerships whatever that looked like um, to mount that pressure on England that we knew that we were capable of doing um, to deliver really what was the outcome of 2006. On DAB Digital Radio and 1089 and 1053 AM, My Sporting Life on Talk Sport. Yeah, Matthew Lawrence Hayden, born the 29th of October 1971 in Kingaroy in Queensland in Australia. 
Matthew is without question one of cricket's all-time great batsmen, having averaged over 50 in 103 tests for Australia, hitting no less than 30 centuries, including a then-world test record of 380 against Zimbabwe in 2003. His exploits in the one-day international scene are no less impressive, averaging just under 44 and 161 appearances for his country, and he played a starring role in Australia's triumphs at both the 2003 and 2007 Cricket World Cups. Numerous personal accolades have also came his way, including receiving the prestigious Allen Border Medal and Test Player of the Year Award in 2002, being named the Wisden Cricketer of the Year in 2003, winning the ICC One Day Player of the Year Award in 2007, and he was appointed a member of the Order of Australia in 2010 for services to cricket and the community. On TalkSport this evening, the legendary figure of Matthew Hayden takes centre stage on My Sporting Life. Matthew, a huge welcome to my sporting life. Um, Matthew, your upbringing is uh, in, in, in Kingaroy, as we heard. Very different from some of the people who have been the guests on the show. It's a peanut farm in, in, in the middle of Australia. Yeah, look, uh, a fair way inland, as you say. It's a two-and-a-half-hour um, drive to Brisbane, uh, which is the major um, city of the Queensland area. But growing up in the bush was, was a really unique experience. It was one that was filled with a lot of love. I've got to say, mm-hmm. um, a, a lot of a lot of time together as a family. The unique scenario around our family life was that my extended family lived with me. My grandparents uh, lived with me on our family estate, and it, it was a third generation, still is now a fourth generation family uh, property. Um, at that time, um, when my great grandfather uh, would have been around, he was pulling up stumps of timber it's that kind of semi forest country um and he would have had the big Clydesdales you know ripping those up wow. and, and I uh, you know I just think what amazing courage that our forefathers had can you imagine in these times packing up everywhere going to a land which you just had no understanding of whatsoever apart from the basics of life and then starting afresh in communities which just had no infrastructure. To, to people like myself, let's say, brought up in the middle of London, um, mm. the idea that you, know, you can look in every direction and you're on the property of your family, that at 10 years mm. of age you're driving a car around the property, because mm. uh, 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 it must have been a, a, a remarkable way to, to grow up. And as, as I say, if I want to give some example, or perhaps the size of the community you lived in, your mum was a teacher... At, at the state mm. high school in, in, in Kingaroy, but she also had a program on the local radio station. Yeah, she was a broadcaster, Mum. Um, for, for a long time, she ran Breakfast Radio, which is now owned by Southern Cross Stereo Media Group. She worked for many years. In fact, I was pretty much born on air. Um, and then she left. Once she had me, she, she, you know, she went back home. She left, and then as I got a little older, she went back to teaching where she's a speech and drama and music teacher and a theatre teacher. So, you know, it was that very much that sort of background. The house was always really lively, I've got to say. Mum uh, comes from a, an enormous family, and uh, all the girls on, on, on her side of the family, her sisters, all had letters in music and speech and drama. So there was never a day that, that wasn't around the fact that you had music in your life and you were just really loving sort of, you know, the theatrical elements. In fact, one of the things that I enjoyed was featuring in The King and I when I was about four. Oh, well. <laughs> um, and, just, and just loving it, you know. So I always did love the stage, I've got to say. Um, but it was always in our life. So we had a really quirky background because Dad, you know, being on the land and from the land, 
uh, had that influence in my life through growing peanuts and sorghum and uh, navy beans, which makes the baked beans for you city slickers out there that don't mm-hmm. know that. Mm-hmm. And, you know, obviously peanuts, uh, but we also had cattle as well. So we had a broad cross-section of, of both uh, uh, agriculture and also grazing properties as well. So it was a wonderful way of life and, and very diverse. And I, I guess you can't ask for a better way to, to live the start of your life, having a broad cross-section of of interests and sport was really the feature I was going to say Matthew where, where, where did Australia. sport come from well every weekend you know it was about culminating you know in some sort of sporting activity or event so you were arriving you know in the in the actual town itself and it was just game on and these areas you know have got some speckled with some fabulous athletes um, it was so important it was a bit like a a dance or a ball was to the broader population, but to the sporting community, everyone would come, you know, of a weekend and play cricket or play football um, and just love it. And that was part of being, you know, a bush kid. And uh, and even when you went to school, I noticed, um, again, that when you went, uh, let me get the name right, to uh, the boarding school, um, uh, the Marist College, Marist College in, yeah. in, in Ashgrove, um, incredibly, it's possible to argue you weren't the most famous sportsman to come out of there at the time. No, exactly. I mean, there's been a few, but John Eels is probably the, the most famous. The great uh, John Eels, the Australian the John Eels. Captain. Oh, sorry, he was um, great captain. then as well. Yeah, <laughs> he was. He was. He was a really interesting character because he was a huge uh, figure of a man. Just even at that age, he he carried this this uh, this presence about him. And I was actually caught up with John not so long back and. He has no recollection of pretty pretty much like all champions that you come across in life. They don't really understand their greatness, and and it takes other people to point them out that hey mate, you did something pretty special here, because he always he always thought he was a real battler at school, that he didn't really sort of fit in, uh, that he certainly wasn't very good at any one thing, rugby or cricket. Uh, but interestingly, from where I saw it, I thought he had a huge uh, status in in the actual school itself. Plus, he was brilliant at cricket. He was outstanding at really? football. And so, here we go. Again, the roundabout of life takes him in a direction where he is sort of struggling to come to terms with his own success and his own performances. And I think that's almost what made him the great champion that he was. Matthew, um, I'll cut straight to a page uh, or a phrase I read in your autobiography. Um, for a man who went on to make a vast number of runs in the test arena, um, your arrival uh, in, in the very high parts of first-class cricket, you describe as a marathon game of snakes and ladders. There's a lot of rejection in the early part of your career, isn't there? Yeah, look, I think they're, uh, my whole career, actually, um, I always struggled to kind of get into any particular side um, right through youth cricket. Uh, I didn't grow, really, until I was around about 16. Uh, I was quite short, and, and I loved to drink of milk and food, naturally, through writing three cookbooks. Um, I loved food, so I was quite wide as well. So I was barely considered an athlete, um, but I did have that real um, tenacity and determination that came with having been made feel the underdog for a long time and, and also just making myself feel like that. Um, so I have to acknowledge that, that I didn't really belong, I don't think, in test cricket for, for a number of years. But going back into sort of at the early stages of first-class cricket, mm-hmm. I'll never forget ringing up Rod Marsh, who was the main uh, coach of the National Institute of Sport here in Australia. 
And uh, it was at a time when I was uh, having to enrol in university um, and I was doing a marketing degree. I, I, I had to sort of go, okay, what, what's my choice here? Is it to go down the path of professional sport or do I plant myself back into uh, educational studies and, and move forward that way? So I thought, look, I'll cut to the chase here. I knew that I'd been nominated from my state um, to go down to the National Academy. Um, there were six members from each state that were invited down there, and then it was really up to the choice of the uh, national committee to to see whether or not you were going to get a Guernsey into that particular unit. Right. So I thought, look, I'll, I'll ring Rod, and I, I said, uh, Rod, it's Matthew Hayden here, and it wasn't a particularly good start because he said Matthew who? Oh my God! <laughs> which was no, which was no real surprise. I've got to say, absolute test icon and legend. Who the hell am I? A small country kid, you know, with a big dream. And then he sort of said, look, to cut to the chase, look, we're really only interested in players here that are that are going to go on and play first-class cricket. So, you know, at this stage, I can't see how that's going to happen. So as it turns out, and look, I didn't take any offence to it, but I did take it within myself to think, you know what, one day I'm going to make sure that I'm in a position where I can say to Rod, you know what, mate, I am a test cricketer. You used, so it, as, he you came, used it as motivation and fuel. I did. Yeah. I did, you know, and I think, Somewhat of my psyche sort of relies on the best way to get me to do something is to tell me I can't do it. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I did use a lot of that internalize and used a lot of that sort of combustion for for moving forward in my life. Uh, and safe to say they came up about a week and a half later, the uh, Youth Academy. And at the time, I actually got picked for Queensland. So it was a great advantage because... I could have been at the academy, but instead I was actually playing with Alan Border, Ian Healy, Craig McDermott, coached by Jeff Thompson at the time, Carl Rackham, and all these champions. Absolutely. And, um, you know, it was a great learning grounds, as as is the AIS, a great learning ga- grounds for your actually game advancement. Um, but, you know, I, I dusted him up. I, I got out on about eight, 186, and I was ropeable thinking, you know, I should have got 386 here. Um, but, you know, that sort of, that kind of set my chain alight. You know, I was sort of unfashionable um, because I, I wasn't particularly flamboyant. Um, I just had a method of getting a lot, large volume of runs. I was particularly limited against spin growing up on fast green wickets that Queensland provide yeah. you as a youth cricketer. So there was a lot of things that just weren't really gelling in terms of being a very good cricketing property across a multiple of, of different venues and I had to work really hard at actually exploring elements of my game, being prepared to go through the really painful process of tearing a game apart. You know, that real analysis is a really painful place, especially when you're trying to carve out your living from it as well. So, you know, I was really very determined, however, to, to just make sure that I was getting better every single day. Whatever happened um, in those early stages, you eventually make your way uh, into the Queensland team in in the winter, our winter, your summer of 1991. And then there's a really, uh, I think, a very interesting interlude in your career, part of your learning curve as well, when you come to this country to play in the Bolton League. Uh, You play for for, for Greenmount Cricket Club, and people, this might have been a passing. Um, a passing episode in your in your life and career, Matthew. Except for the other people who, who were involved, tell us something about about Greenmount Cricket Club and what you did that 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 uh, year here in England. Well, you know, I've looked back at a lot of my career with fabulous memories, but I've got to say, in the top three, would be my experience playing in the Bolton League at Greenmount Cricket Club. I was welcomed there firstly with absolute open arms. You know, I'd stumbled across uh, two, two very infamous at the time 
young men called the Neville brothers, Gary and Philip. Wow. And both of them were playing within the side. Uh, in fact, I can remember, and I'm an absolute hack, I've got to say, when it comes to, I've got three left feet when it comes to a soccer ball. So I always sort of was curious to know why they were a little cautious about getting anywhere near, near me. But at the time, that was when, um, you, you know, the great uh, Alex Ferguson, Sir Alex Ferguson had, had started up this youth academy and they were really the first to be enrolled you know, within Man United Youth Academies. Yeah. And they were regularly going. And on the weekends, they'd come back and they'd play cricket. And, and typical of their careers as well, Philip was a was a high finesse player in cricket, a particularly strong player, was a, was a bit of an all-rounder, but a very good batsman, solid in the field. Gary was, was an absolute thrashing machine, you know, really aggressive and just loved the fight. And, you know, that's how they went on also to play their footy, isn't it, as well? And every weekend, you know, I'd go down. I had a sub-pro. His name was Chris Holding. And we'd go down to the Nevilles uh, and have a fabulous meal with them. We'd watch the footy. And in, you know, that particular time, uh, Sky TV was only just starting to, yeah. to happen on the platform. Um, so it was about going down there and watching sport and uh, having beautiful Sunday roasts. Um, this, this is probably a difficult question to answer, Matthew, but uh, if they hadn't uh, been footballers, do you think either of the, of the Nevilles could have been professional cricket players? I reckon Gary, no. Sorry, Gaz. Yep. <laughs> I don't think he had probably the ability, but Phil most definitely did have the ability. He had the class that, that was required to, to survive within cricket, and he obviously had the athletic ability as well. So those memories were particularly fond to play with men to hear the stories, to drink the bitter, you know, to have the Sunday afternoon teas, to see the rattle of the tin go around the ground, to be living on my own, you know, in another country. I tell you, it just, honestly, it was the best experience. I just seemed to grow 10 years of age in that particular time uh, it's, and it, loved it, every second it's of it. It's almost like going to a, to a university abroad or something like that. It just changes you as a person. Let's talk about it. And you're making some progress in first-class cricket in Australia as well. And very quickly, you're getting into Australian teams. You made your one-day debut in this country, I think. And yeah, it remind was a Texaco me, Trophy in the, ahead that's of the right, Ashes yeah. series. Yeah, uh, and and uh, and I wasn't good enough. <laughs> that's the bottom line. <laughs> I just wasn't. You know, like I was. I was certainly. I'd had sort of seven or eight thousand first-class runs behind me. Um, by the time that I was sort of really starting to strike my, 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 or hit my straps. But, you know, in those early days in 93, I'd probably only had two or 3,000 runs behind me. Uh, I'd, I'd started playing really nicely in one-day cricket domestically, but I'd had no real experience. And as a rookie going into those conditions, in fact, England was always my nemesis full stop because I, I found it the most challenging place to play in, in international cricket uh, I always felt like it took me too long to kind of warm up and get get my feet back into the conditions. Um, mm-hmm. so, so it was probably no surprise, really, that I, I didn't really kind of set the world on fire, you know, early doors in my career. But simply put, I just wasn't advanced enough in my game and my and my overall game to really make a fist of first of, of international cricket, well, you, you know, know, at that sort of 93 stage. Well, yeah, in, in, uh, in March of 94, um, in Johannesburg, um, a moment that, uh, you know, most Australian uh, kids seem to dream about, you, uh, you play for the, uh, the, for the full national team in a test match as well. And we'll come on in the mm. next part of the show to, uh, to talk about how, how 
how difficult it was for you in those first few years as an Australian test mm. player. But just try and remind me of how you felt uh, walking out for the first time. Uh, do you get you get the baggy green cap in a little ceremony before the match? How does it work? Well, actually, then no. Uh, it arrived in a brown paper bag, um, which was at the bottom of your team kit when you got selected to play and, and go on tour. Uh, and I'll never forget mine because I had this dirty big box of kit arrived for the 93 Ashes Tour. I threw everything out on top. And right at the bottom was actually this um, little bag that was just in brown paper. And I thought, that's got to be my baggy green. Um, and I had my family around the table with me when I, when I opened a bag up. There was two baggy greens in that, uh, in that particular time. It was only to the Stephen Warrior that kind of made it one cap and that was it. Mm-hmm. So when I opened it up, you know, I had my dad basically saying how proud he was of me. My brother, who was coach at the time, you know, going through all of the work and what we'd achieved together even before we'd arrived at that stage. Mum was a mess, you know, she was was saying how much she loved me and was so proud of me, you know, coming from the place that we did. And, you know, here we are, you know, sitting on it, sitting as a family member on a global stage. uh, was a really significant thing for our family. And, And I'll never forget it, you know, that night, I'll unashamedly say that I went to bed with my baggy green cap on. Safe to say I didn't wake up with it in the morning, no, but no. gee, I loved it. You know, I loved the thought of it. The, the clubhouse sort of thinking was exactly where I wanted to be in my life. Matthew, we heard there about your test debut in South Africa in 1994. It didn't go that brilliantly, and I guess there's another word to express it. You, you were dropped, and you didn't play again then for a test match, uh, in a test match until 1996. I'm going to be even crueler rather than stating those facts. There are even people who are starting to make comparisons with our own Graham Hick, um, a marvellous mm. uh, domestic player who couldn't translate it necessarily in the international stage. What do you remember about that sort of that, that those years of, of, again, being in the wilderness? Well, look, I think you have to put it in context with where the side was at at the time. Like even in 93, you know, where I didn't play a test match, went on tour with the absolute running of the, uh, of the selection being picked in the first three Texaco Trophy games. And, and everyone back home had fully expected that I play the first uh, Ashes test alongside Mark Taylor. Uh, but when that didn't happen and Michael Slater got that opportunity, and rightly so, he really sort of took uh, matters into his own hands and Mark Taylor was exactly the same. And, and the trouble with being an opener, of course, is that there's only two spots in the in the lineup that you've yeah. got an opportunity to go take. And look, we, we, the calibre of players that were on that tour in 94... You know, the Alan Borders, the David Boones, the Mark and Steve Wars, the, you know, Mark Taylor, as I just mentioned, Michael Slater on top of his game and just beating the world down. And then lists of players that were sitting behind that, like Damian Martin, Ricky Ponting, Darren Lehman. You know, these guys, Stuart Law, that they were just yeah. fabulous cricketers. So it was a very, very hard and hard-nosed landscape to actually be a part of and, and actually get into the side. Plus, you've got to also remember culturally the background, having been led by Alan Border, who was very, very determined to make the Australian cricket team, along with Bob Simpson, something special and something unique to this country. He was going to take no prisoners along the way. He needed tough, hard men with good work ethics that loved to play hard, but also enjoyed themselves off the field. You know, there was always that theory of good tourists and bad tourists. Good tourists being the ones that would work hard and play hard. Bad tourists, you know, just not selfish and not being a part of their the whole culture and wrapped up in the culture. You know, so, you know, I ticked a lot of the boxes, but fundamentally... I had to beat Mark Taylor and Michael Slater into the side and they'd formed a very unique bond 
in firstly the five test matches that they played in England. And then in the summer, they came out and they played equally as well. So my call-up was always on a very temporary contract, if you like. I mean, you made a, you've made um, the point beautifully there that just the depth of, of the Australian cricket, particularly well, in the batting area. Because I can remember summer after summer here in England, you mentioned two players there, Darren Lehman and Stuart mm. Law, who dominated the English summers in county cricket. And mm. we, could, we could never understand, well, how can they never play for Australia or very, very rarely play for Australia? But of course, that was said something about the depth of the team. In yeah, sure. I mean, you draw, you draw a line across the on the old teletext, draw a line across across the averages and aggregates, and you'd always see, you know, the top six or seven players with both bat and ball through that era in county cricket being pretty much Australians. Absolutely. So it was a tough era to play in. In 1996, um, we'll come. You get. Well, first of all, we should say um, important moment in your life in that you uh, marry Kelly. Um, mm. And uh, we'll talk later about about your family life, if I if I may. Um, and cool. the Australian. Selectors, goodness, this, this is almost incredible, isn't it? They did make the decision in the middle of the uh, 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 of all of this that, that Michael Slater is going to be taking out the Australian team. This is a despite averaging forty-seven in his thirty-four <laughs> tests, and even yeah, then they don't replace yeah. him with Matthew Hayden. It's Matthew Elliott who gets in the team, um, mm, which itself, yeah. which itself, is, itself sparks a newspaper campaign in Australia for your inclusion in the side. That campaign was it was interesting because. That campaign in particular, um, it did strike a couple of very negative chords within the Australian cricket camp. And I I think it's kind of negatively impacted on me to a certain degree anyway, because the Queensland people are very parochial, as are the other states as well. But, you know, when they feel like there's something happening which is not quite right, they blow up. And uh, as you say in the background of pretty much every camera angle. I think they had someone working inside Channel 9 to say, hey, mate, you need to flash over to this particular uh, sign that this little kid's holding up that says, give Matt a bat. <laughs> um, and in fact, you know, that, that headline then, you know, Matt the bat was always sort of coming up, you know, through various times in the year when I kept on chipping away at, you know, certain certain uh, records within state cricket. Yeah. Um, but to be very honest, look, I just kept my nose to the ground and, and just 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 really ground out runs and constantly got better every day, uh, and constantly got better every day. Like I can remember through that period as well, down at uh, Hampshire, having some wonderful mem- memories with, you know, guys like Robin Smith who played the game hard but had a really good work ethic as well and had fun off the pitch. Malcolm Marshall, Marshall, who, you know, the most beautiful man and and the most talented cricketer that I've ever seen. Yep. You know, having him as a mentor talking about swing bowling and, and him coming out and having private sessions with me. And then we'd sneak back into the bar and have a couple of rums and, and a few cherries, you know, after the after the actual performances. But, you know, those guys just made such an enormous impact on me as a cricketer and really made me sort of improve as well and made me fall in love with the game and made me desire being a better cricketer every day and, and planted those seeds for me to grow and develop. And then, you know, my time as captain of Northants, you know, on really turning wickets where, you know, Brownie and a young Graham Swan, you know, were very much a part of the arsenal of the Northampton cricket team. Yeah. And having an opportunity there to play in those conditions, you know, for two years um, at the back end of, of the season when everyone was saying, oh, how come, you know, Matty's not on the Ashes squad and where is he? I mean, he's just fallen off the radar. But, yeah, that may be true from an international stage. But what sat next to that was this fa- fantastic 
nutrients that were coming out of and really sort of adding a great weight to, to my cricketing performance. And I took everything, and, and my wife did as well, every experience that we had. You know, we loved the cultures that we were involved in. We gave a lot back to those communities of people. And in turn, we actually, you know, were able to grow out of it as well and, and just loved it. Matthew, you, uh, you, get a, you get back into the Australian test team uh, having uh, on the back of this newspaper campaign but unfortunately Matthew Elliott gets an injury and you play in the third test um, it's your first home test of course you play in the third test in Melbourne against the West Indies um, mm. and you don't do very well but of course again I'm not I'm not really blaming you because of course your wicket is taken both times by Kirtley Ambrose who I presume <laughs> that who I presume at that stage was absolutely in his pomp yes yeah he was and look I was terrified I've got to say as well that was my first boxing day test match Hundred thousand people, hundred thousand people. You know this 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 city, this country kid that has you know arrived at the big smoke. Your room, for goodness' sake, had the the curtains and they looked out over the Coliseum of the MCG, and you knew what you were in for the next day. So, look, I was petrified, and I'll never forget, you know, walking off after leaving the first ball off Kirtley Ambrose, and uh, my off stump tumbling out towards uh, the wicketkeeper. And they're all going absolutely bananas like they do in the West Indies. And I walk back through the pack. And I've got to say, it's a long way off the MCG. Yeah, yeah. And then I come to the members area. And, of course, as you say, I replaced Matthew Elliott. So they, didn't, they weren't that happy about that. And I finally got up through the change room's doors. And I thought, oh, my teammates will be here to give me support. <laughs> I opened the door and they had all their heads down. Oh, but it dear. just doesn't, it, it doesn't stop there either. Then you have to go through three flights of stairs along a big corridor and then into the dungeon, which would make a good cellar. So there I sort of stayed, you know, on ice for the better part of five days. And, and just, it was a really tough, uh, it was a really tough thing to do, I can tell you. And then it, uh, then it turns around the next test, Matthew. Um, let's hear about how in, in the fourth test in Adelaide, <laughs> you make your debut te- test hundred. And, and uh, well, yeah. tell me about that. Well, firstly, uh, Adelaide Oval's a very unique and, and sacred place to play. Um, it's kind of the old school of, of... It's a bit like the Lords, I suppose, right. of of uh, county cricket and English cricket. It's, uh, you know, it's a fabulous place, a lot of tradition. I've always very, very much enjoyed going there as well. It's pretty much always a turning wicket. And by that stage as well, I was starting to really improve my game against spin bowling. Um, they had also Ambrose out, and he was a real nemesis. So I, I always kind of fancied myself a, a bit against um, Big Cuddy Walsh because um, he always took the ball away from the left-hander, so, and I felt comfortable leaving cricket balls, mm-hmm. whereas Ambrose always, you never knew which way it was going to go, which was just, so you always kind of were left thinking, oh, I've probably got to play it. Um, but yeah, look, it was, at the time, I think it was recorded one of the worst hundreds that anyone had ever seen at international cricket. Really? Oh. Well, I got I got caught off a, a no ball for a start. I think it, whether it was, I can't remember if it was Ambrose or Patterson, skewed off the sort of top edge of my bat and I got caught at gully somewhere but it was a noey so that was kind of my first lifeline uh, I think that was a bit harsh like it wasn't a bad it wasn't my best performance but you know it was a pretty dogged more along the lines of what my career looked like at the time I'd occupy the crease I knew how to get runs and I wouldn't sort of change the fly too much so to speak I'd just swim between the flags and, and, and be safe and, and be assured of the fact that I was going to bat a long time. Uh, so it wasn't pretty, 
but you know, probably didn't deserve to be slated the worst hundred. Everyone, no, I mean, it, for, for a start, not everybody can. We can't remember every single hundred and how bad they were, can we? No, well, every hundred that you get's a good hundred. In that my seems, opinion, that seems about right to me. That seems about right. <laughs> were, were your family there to see all this, Matthew? This is how great my family is. My mum and dad drove down from uh, from country Kingaroy, and my brother with them as well for both the Boxing Day Test match and also the Adelaide Test match. And to put that into perspective for you, that's that's a full forty hour drive. So you know, wow. imagine if you set off in your car from London and drove forty hours in and across, you'd get to just about the other side of Russia, I reckon. Well, you get past Moscow, so, I think. Yeah, you would. Yeah, so you know, it's a long way, and 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 the tyranny of distance. But they were there every second of the way to support me, and you know, one of the finest ales that I've ever consumed was with my mum and dad and my brother. At that particular time, uh, you know, where I've got a test match hundred, and uh, you know, we've had we've had that point in our life where we go, you know, we've done it once. It might be just possible to do it again. Matthew, in this section, I want to talk about a, a, a time in your life where we've talked about your maiden test century um, in nineteen ninety seven. But four or five years later, you are mm. um, the, one of the sport, one, you know, one of the cricketers of the year. Um, scoring double hundreds in in, in uh, difficult circumstances away from Australia, and yet in the middle of all that, we have another situation where you don't go to England for the 1998 Ashes series, and another three-year absence from the Test arena. And given the, the, the figures that you piled up, it's almost impossible to believe that once again you were out of the team. Um, tell, tell me well, about the selectors uh, had rocks in their heads, didn't they? Well, yeah. But, but look, <laughs> look at what you did after that. Suggests that you're right. They would say, of course, oh. that by keeping you out of the team, they're right, which is true. Yeah. Well, they kept me on ice for a long time. There's, there's no doubt, and kept me, kept me wondering or pondering, you know, what more I really needed to do, um, and with good reason as well. I didn't really like, even when I look back at sort of after that first century that I got against the West Indies. I hadn't really nailed my opportunity. You know, it's a pretty tough school as well. I think if you don't average between 40 and 50 in your first, you know, 10 games, you're pretty much on, on notice, really. And that's mm-hmm. that's why I think this great Australian side and the generations before it ha- have just demanded excellence. And and I fully understand and and have empathy for that, that scenario. And then when I went to South Africa... Um, to play a three-test match series, and, and it's a difficult series number to play as well. I've got to say, you know, it's it you, you you fail in the first game and you're under pressure in the second, and if you don't really rise to that, then on the third you're pretty much on the chopping block, and and really that's exactly what happened. And and they were a very good side as well. They were, they were a highly talented side. Uh, Farney De Villiers, Donald, yeah, um, Craig McMillan. Um, they had a very, very good side, um, and they knew their conditions well. Um, they probably were a bit limited with the spin bowling at that particular time, but gee, they really put us under pressure. And and as a side, we were kind of we were starting to shift. You know, Alan Border that would be his uh, final season uh, as well. Um, so he was sort of starting to feel the pressure and. You know, just all of those things kind of add up. You know, change of leadership, Mark Taylor. You know, Mark never did me any favours because he's a left-handed opening batsman. Sure. Well, hello, so am I. Yeah. yeah. And um, look, we didn't pull any punches, you know, when we were actually playing New South Wales versus Queensland together or, in fact, Australia A in Australia. So, you know, I was all over him like a cheap suit and, and he didn't want to actually give over his spot and I don't blame him for that. So, you know, I really had to work very hard um, to, to to just 
stay in the actual presence of the selectors because it's not like when I arrived at Test Cricket that I was giving them a lot of solid information to say, hey, he's our Huckleberry, let's keep him in the side. Sure. Um, so, yeah, it, 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 you know, you often hear these cliches that it is what it is. Well, it was what it was. That was where I was at. You come back into the, into the Test side um, in, in, at the turn of the millennium, but not before we should talk about this. Um, you had a pretty, pretty hair-raising boating accident um, yourself. Uh, Andrew Simmons, of course, um, mm. a great cricketer himself, and fishing writer uh, Trent Butler. Tell me, I, mean, I know you're a pretty outdoors kind of guy. What, what happened here? Well, I do love the outdoors. This is January of 2000, so right at the millennium, yeah. Yeah, right on Christmas it was, and Christmas is known as cyclone season up here, so we get a lot of swell on our east coast, um, and we were staying over the Christmas period over at a little place called North Stradbroke Island. This particular Christmas, Simo and I had a small uh, boat together. Um, both of us loved our fishing. It was uh, as much a part of our life as what cricket was and family is. Um, so we were out in the morning with, Trent Butler, as you said, we didn't really know Trent that well. He was a, a fishing rider. We thought he, we'd, we'd just invite him along so he could take some pictures and ride a bit of a yarn. But what turned out was the fact that we were sitting right in the middle of a, of a um, bank of waves and uh, it turned our boat over in the middle of the night pretty much. It was about 3 o'clock in the morning, um, right before the, the sunrise, and we had to swim for a little over an hour. Um, in this uh, quite ex- extensive channel, which it's about an eight or nine kilometre wide channel, um, and we were sitting on the uh, probably about a k offshore. Wow! Um, so we had to swim back in for our lives, and thankfully we did because look, it could have Danny been a very different story. In fact, we got about halfway through the swim, and Trent was starting to really uh, knock up as. You know, you couldn't blame him for that. We had I was current, say, you, you big, so, big waves. Yourself and Andrew are professional sportsmen. You're both incredibly strong guys. But even, that, even you, a swim in a kilometre is a pretty, in a, in a current, it's a difficult, difficult thing. Well, you're in shock as well. It's not like you're supposed to be in the water at that particular time. So it's not like you're planning to, you're putting your, your, your swimming cap on, your goggles, and you're going for a swim. Um, it's not that easy. So, yeah, at one point, Simo and I turned to each other and said, look, we might have to actually, you know, make just control the situation here. We might have to actually dust him up and, you know, make sure that he's not going to drown us and then therefore drown himself also. Because panic is a funny thing in life, isn't it? If it can send you and do 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 crazy things to you. So, yeah. In the end, we ended up having to rescue him. We we got over the. There's two banks always pretty much in Australia. You've got an outer <coughs> bank and an inner bank. And we, he got bashed by these waves on the outer bank and he, he was going down. So we dragged his hands up and uh, Simo and I got either side of him and dragged him up to the shore and there some local fishermen picked us up. And by that stage, there was also helicopters that were doing capturing the story and were doing figure eights in and around the bar to search you know, if, if there was any survivors or, or where we were really. So it was a very re- um, relief and welcome called um, when we uh, when we rang home and said to our respective partners that we're safe and everyone's well and the only thing that's really gone down is our boat which was just bobbing up and down like a cork in the water listen th- thank you very much for telling us about that you come back into the into the test team um, in tests against New Zealand and the West Indies and then you head to India with the with the Australian mm. team 
I should make the point that this Australian team by this stage has won 15 matches in a row over 15 months, which just shows you the kind of standards they were setting. Mm. And that series, I remember very, very distinctly that series between India and Australia has gone down as one of the great series um, in Mm. Test cricket history. And it's also the one where finally, finally, I think it's fair mm. to say you establish yourself not just in the Australian team, um, but in the in the world in on the on the, the world cricket in stage. Yeah, I think you, you you're right. I mean, I'd really I'd really come of age if you, if you like for better for better segment of words. It was really it was at a time where I pretty much thought to myself, I can't do any more improving here. All I have to do now is just go back the no the way that I've I've now taught myself and those around me have done done that so I can so I can really just launch into that platform I've done a lot of work including the t- couple of years at Northampton uh, on big turning tracks um, you know I'd come back home I'd done a lot of work I was geared up and ready to play on spinning wickets I was fit as a Mallee bull um, I was really determined you know the, the the ducks in a row were just all there and, and all I had to do was just grab the opportunity and that's exactly what happened you know I just I was ready to play um, someone like Harbison was telling me that I couldn't do it, mm-hmm. um, which, as I said before, was just you know right up my alley. Um, the, the pressure was off in a lot of ways. I felt in those conditions because the balls were turning so far that you know it meant that that every ball had to be accurate, otherwise it was easy picking. So. You know, it was just my time, I think, and, and I grabbed it with both hands and you, just you loved cer- every second you of it. You certainly did. You played in a wonderful series, including in the third test in Chennai, your first double ton, 203 uh, for you, Matthew. Most people would be very happy to have that as uh, their all-time top test score, but as we're here, going to hear later on in the show, um, of course, you've gone to nearly double that. You also uh, played over here in the 2001 Ashes series, um, and as I say, finally establish yourself in an Australian team that you are going to go on to have tremendous success with and have tremendous success as an individual. We'll hear about that in the second part of the show. Now, though, coming up here next on My Sporting Life, we'll put Matthew Hayden through his Sporting Inquisition. Your Sporting Inquisition on Talk Sport. Matthew Hayden. You know the drill, about 15 quick-fire questions for Matthew Hayden. Starting, Matthew, with what's your favourite sporting venue? Uh, MCG. Okay. Who's been your toughest individual opponent? Uh, Kirtley Ambrose. What's your favourite city? London. Wow. Oh, sorry, I've got to expand. Ooh, controversy, wasn't it? No, no, that's <laughs> you great. You didn't expect that one, what? did you? No, I didn't. Why, why is London your favourite city? Oh, I just, I just think it's fabulous. It's just, it's history. It's like the Monopoly board. Perfect. <laughs> what's your favourite? What's the best car you've ever driven? Uh, Ferrari, Warnies actually. Oh, no, do you have a favourite driving <laughs> song? Uh, anything James Taylor. Okay, now here's a tricky one for you. Since you you threw me the London one, Brian Lara or Ricky Ponting? Ooh, for my life, Ricky Ponting. Okay, what's to, your... for just pure for just beauty, Brian Lara. Okay, uh, what, what's your favourite drink? Uh, well, red wine. If you could be a star in any sport except cricket, which one would you choose to be a star in? Surfing. Of course, you're you're in this country. We call you a surf bum, but you are a big surf fan, mm-hmm. aren't you? Yeah. Who I would love you love it? Who would you? Who might you pick you to play? Who might you pick to play you in a film, Matthew? Oh, gee, Brad Pitt. No idea why. Very good choice. <laughs> um, is there a book you wish you'd written? Uh, I'd like to write a barbecue book. Yes, you write you, you write cookery books. Barbecues don't you? are the world book. 
Yeah, because yeah. you write cookery books, don't you? Yeah, oh, I do. Yeah. Uh, uh, which historical figure do you most admire? Historical figure. Hmm. Um, Nelson Mandela. Yeah, it's it's a pretty good answer, isn't it? In this time in our lives, who's your favourite cartoon character? Uh, Wiley Coyote. Meep meep, etc. <laughs> and uh, finally, uh, if I, uh, we're going to talk about a lot more in the next uh, hour or so, what's your best moment in cricket? Probably the, either of the two World Cup victories, both? the one in South Africa or the West Indies. They're both good. One was a little less farcical than the other two, yeah, I might add. The one fair. in the West Indies <laughs> didn't didn't conclude correctly, but there you go. But, but we'll hear about both of those in the next hour because uh, that, that is it uh, for the first half of tonight's edition of My Sporting Life here on Talk Sport um, with uh, Matthew Hayden. We'll be hearing more from him over the next hour. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavourless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. The following on podcast is proudly sponsored by Barbados Tourism. If your passion for travel is on par with your passion for cricket, then I have some excellent news. The ICC Men's Cricket T20 World Cup Final is being hosted in Barbados this June, which makes it the perfect destination for your summer holidays this year. To make the most of your trip, you can also experience eight matches from the series in Barbados, including England against Scotland and England against Australia. In under a month's time, you could be spending your days exploring the vibrant streets of Bridgetown, drinking rum in the sunshine and experiencing exotic Bayesian delicacies in the culinary capital of the Caribbean. There truly is something for everyone. There's no need to wait a second longer. Head to visitbarbados.org forward slash cricket today to book the trip of a lifetime to Barbados. Truly the best place to be a cricket fan. On DAB Digital Radio and 1089 and 1053 AM. My Sporting Life on Talk Sport. Yeah, I'm Danny Kelly. Welcome to part two of My Sporting Life with Matthew Hayden here on Talk Sport. And Matthew is that one question, one of cricket's all-time great batsmen, having averaged over 50 in 103 tests for Australia, hitting no less than 30 centuries, including a then world test record of 380 against Zimbabwe in 2003. His exploits in the one-day international scene are no less impressive, averaging just under 44 in 161 appearances for his country 
and he played a starring role in Australia's triumphs at both the 2003 and 2007 Cricket World Cups. Numerous personal accolades have also come his way, including receiving the prestigious Alan Border Medal in 2002, being named the Wisdom Cricketer of the Year in 2003, winning the ICC One Day Player of the Year Award in 2007, and being made a member of the Order of Australia in 2010. On tonight's My Sporting Life, I'm joined by one of the truly great batsmen of cricket's modern era, Matthew Hayden. Matthew, welcome back. Um, after your uh, phenomenal uh, series in, uh, uh, in in India in 2000-2001, mm. uh, you established your partnership with Justin Langer. And what happens over the next few years, um, it would be impossible for us to do justice to on this programme because there are so many highlights. Just let me remind people that in the years 2001... It'd be a bit embarrassing for a start, though, because there'd be way too much hugging involved, which have some sensitivities around it. <laughs> The man crush, as they call it. 2001, 2002, 2003, 2004, 2005. You Mm. score a 1,000 test runs in each of those years. Australia also winning all around them. If I may, you you can pick out some highlights for me if you like, but I'd like to talk about two things in this section in particular. Um, Australia's victory in the 2003 World Cup in the one-day team, which, of course, you're also an integral part of, and Australia are all-powerful. And then later on, if if I may, I'd like to talk about the time when you break the uh, test scoring record with a fantastic innings of 380. Talk to us about the Mm. World Cup win in 2003, if you would. Well, as as you remember, it was actually plagued the start of it by the controversy with Shane Warne in the um, drug scandal. Um, yeah. So the the group the group really had a lot of work to do in the initial stages of it, and I've got to say, like going into that particular tournament, there wasn't one person that in the room that didn't believe that they weren't going to be uh, at the back end of the series holding the World Cup up and being undefeated. That's just the way the side kind of was thinking at that period of time. I think you were already champions, weren't you? Well, I think in our own heads we were. Oh, okay. There's no (laughs) doubt about it. You know, and I mean that in a... That sounds a bit arrogant, but I do mean that in a way that everyone had a very same or or, or similar story to to what I'd had. You know, guys like, for example, Adam Gilchrist, who who was a phenomenon in himself. Um, He virtually changed... The, the landscape of cricket by the fact that he he was such a dynamic batter with this enormous capability with the gloves very very um, v- very very uh, non technical but just explosive and explored I mean, Matthew, and had this great freedom you know that's just one guy your colleague about. Adam Gilchrist has changed the game of cricket forever he has essentially he has knocked the all rounder out of cricket hasn't he because now the wicketkeeper batsman is the all rounder in the team. Yeah, it seems that way. And, and look, he probably humbly wouldn't have sought after doing that. But, uh, you know, someone like Gilly, he, 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 as you say, he virtually was just one member of the side that had this great aspiration. And as a young person, the ball, when it hit his bat, it had a different sound. It was just this clean, absolutely crisp pop, just and it just disappeared. But Gilly always had something really special. And so... You know, when you're actually sitting down at the other end of the wicket watching just this onslaught of of really just domination, it was very hard not to actually improve as a player and, and to really sort of get sucked up into this momentum that the side just seemed to have and this confidence and this, this kind of aura that surrounded the group. And, and so when Warney went down, it kind of just put a bit of a chink in the armour for, for a couple of days ahead of the World Cup. Um, but then Brad Hogg, you know, came up 
and just lifted and and he had such a fabulous South African World Cup that it just it was just ridiculous. You know, so there was always guys the culture bred this this kind of self perpetuating player of success and immense confidence and just this belief that they had that that would that would sweep them up and would make them better than what they currently were before they came into the side. And sure enough, despite the setback of losing Shane Warne, and let's be fair, what a setback that is to, to, to any team in the world in the entire history of cricket, you do win mm. all the pool games, you're unbeaten the Super 6, the second um, round of the tournament, beat Sri Lanka in the semi-final. What do you remember about the final against India in, in Johannesburg? Well, you know, it was one again of just complete domination. I, I think we were sort of, we, if we were going to fall, we were going to fall actually in Port Elizabeth. Um, and Michael Bevan and Andy Bickle, Andy Bickle had a fabulous uh, uh, tournament as well um, during that World Cup in South Africa. Um, if we're going to fall, we're going to fall there. So when we came to India, my, my recollection is us winning the toss, batting, and uh, Gilly just absolutely teeing off on Zahir Khan in the first over. And, and Zahir has, you know, this great presence as well mm. in the middle. And the and the backing of a nation, you know, of 1.4 billion strong. Here we are, 25 million strong, thinking how good we are. And yet there's this weight of performance that has to go around a nation like India. And, you know, if a one man metaphorically could reach into someone's heart, split the chest and pull it out, that was Adam Gilchrist in the first over. I think he'd scored something like 15 or 16 in that first over. And I thought from that moment on, Australia had the World Cup sewn up well, in Matthew, one over. Of course, it was, it was, it was a very one-sided final, as you say, crushing domination. And uh, for your benefit and I uh, hope for your enjoyment, let's hear the moment when Australia clinched the 2003 Cricket World Cup. That's in the air. Should be taken. The World Cup for Australia. A comprehensive win here by 125 runs. Well, they've put a lot of work into that and they've played extremely well all the way through. Yeah, Australia, they're winning the 2003 World Cup and it was later in that year, Matthew, where in the middle of this astonishing run of uh, scores and centuries you were putting together um, with yourself and Justin Langer in what turned out to be one of the great opening partnerships in Test history... You, in the first test against Zimbabwe at Perth, made, oh, I mean, the figure just it's jumping off the page in front of me here, made 380 runs in a, in a single innings. Let's just play some of the highlights of that amazing innings. And there it is. Century for Matthew Hayden. His 15th test 100. He's first in Perth. And he's played a cracking shot. Don't worry about fieldsmen. You can't stop that. Oh, it's all happening. Have a look at that. That's a magnificent shot straight down the ground for six. He is absolutely murdering Zimbabwe. There's the 300 for Matthew Hayden. Direct hit. He's happy that he's home, though. And he's just the second man to make a triple century in Test cricket in Australia. And that's it. That's a great shot. Up go the arms of Matthew Hayden. That is the world record. What a performance. I mean, Matthew, <laughs> maybe every scoring record you've ever had will be taken away from you by some prodigy in the, in the future. 
Who knows? Um, but they yep, can never I take so. away. I hope it does happen. They can never take away from you the fact that for, the fact that for one while there, you were the highest scoring batsman in a single test innings ever. That, that's a badge you can wear forever. What were your feelings as that innings <laughs> were unfolding? And when you finished uh, 380, what were your feelings? Well, if I can take you to the end before the start. Yeah. Um, I walked in the dressing room uh, ahead of breaking that record. And, you know, I've never been one for all these records. And I certainly, I mean, it was courageous that Mark Taylor basically um, was to declare on the great Donald Bradman's uh, record. But I, I thought personally, without being disrespectful, I thought that was a nonsense. I thought that records were made to be broken. Yeah, of course. And I, and I rightfully say that I hope, and it already has, you know, it's got broken in nine months and I was delighted for Brian Lara that he went on to make 400. But my concern was actually when I went into the dressing room at tea time before I broke uh, the at, at that time world record, um, I went up to Stephen Waugh and I said, mate, surely we have got enough runs. I mean, we can win this test match today. Let's just do it. He said, no, he wanted no bar of it. He said, mate, I want you to go on and get 400. I said, well, Tug, you know, I'm just embarrassed, mate. Like, honestly, like how much more do we really need? He said, I don't care. Just go on, just bat. So when I got out in the middle, it was kind of that attitude, actually, when I look back at it for maybe, uh, maybe 150 runs. I just didn't really care. And I'd say that with all due respect as well. I had the attitude that, I didn't. It didn't matter whether I was going to get out because I was scoring so freely that I was just in this, this massive uh, ball of momentum, that everything just pinged off the bat. And even when I sort of thought, oh, I might have mishit that, I had it. I had it. The sense, at least, to think which way is the wind coming, and you know, it had ended up disappearing out of the ground. It was that kind of touch, and I came over to Perth, never having struck a ball in anger ahead of that Test match. And so I spent the better part of four days ahead of that test match banging cricket balls and literally batting for like four or five-hour sessions, like pretty much all-day sessions, so much so that I actually did my back. And um, the physio at the time, Errol Lawcott, had to actually fitness test me on the day of that uh, particular match because I was in a in grave doubt. And I ended up sort of etching through the, etching through the uh, fitness test and, and playing, but... And, you know, that did have that sort of tag, oh, it was only Zimbabwe and, you know, it was the first game. What does it really matter? But, you know, there was this challenge leading up to the actual tournament as well, which which was ahead of me. And, and just to play, when I really think, think back to it, it was probably a bit lucky. Uh, and I certainly, you know, there's a lot to be said for mental freshness as well. I mean, had that have been kind of you know, three quarters of a way through a 10-month season, which we'd traditionally play both home and, and then abroad, you know, maybe I wouldn't be on that same mindset and have that freedom and that almost, you know, like spirit of the dolphin or spirit of the ocean, which is just sort of floating and being free. And, you know, I was creative and I just loved every second of it. Let's move forward, if I may, to 2005. Of course, another very beautiful event for you in April of that year when uh, you and Kelly had your second child, Joshua. Um, yep, and then, Joshy, yep. and then, some months later, a couple of months later, the the 2005 Ashes series. It's it's still an incredibly fierce and uh, clear mm. memory for you who played mm. in that series. I mean, look, let, let's mm. be fair, Matthew. People in England have gone on to say that it's the greatest Test series ever, and it revivified Test cricket. I don't think mm. even Australians would, would would deny that. It was an incredible, incredible no. summer, wasn't it? 
No, we absolutely love a battle, and that's exactly what we had. And, and look, to put this game into perspective, and, and, and in particular, to, to look at the landscape of test match cricket, when it really comes down to it, and you hear people argue about you know, 2020 cricket and you know, one-day cricket and the impact that it's had on the game, um, and you start to think, well, okay, how do you rationalise this performance and, and, and the measure, you know, which game is more popular than the other, when it all comes down to it, Players and spectators may well love all formats of the game, but what they really want to play, you know, when you're part of Australia and when you're a part of an English um, um, society, what they really want to play is a test match. That's an Ashes test match. And I think spectators along with that get wrapped up in this great passion for the game because it's not the same if it's if it's another test nation with all due respect playing the ashes is the absolute pinnacle of it you know it as a player you know it as a spectator and you want to be there so when you're a part of something as thrilling as what we saw in 2005 it just it's unforgettable and it's just it carves its way into history like no other series. And let, let's let's. I mean, we, we should remind ourselves that Australia won the first test. I mean, this is almost lost in the in the in the gunfire of history now. That Australia won that first mm. test, but even in the build-up to it, in your book, you say, and I'm, I trust you enough, Matthew, uh, that you didn't just retrofit this, if you like, that mm-hmm. you knew yeah. that something was happening with the England team. There was an incident involving Simon Jones in the build-up to it, and you got the impression that this was a different kind of England side. I 100% um, have written that, and I, I completely almost can feel it. It was now. a one-day we game at Edgbaston, wasn't it? 10 years ago. Edgbaston yeah. test match, Simon Jones, and it was always a bit of a pet hate of mine when a bowler you know, threw the ball back at, at you and you were just standing in your crease. And but he hit you, didn't he's he? Got a, he's, he's got every right to do it. I mean, the fact is that there was a point in time where I thought, you know what, that mate, I'm going to sort of put the acid on you here a bit. But what I found in that particular moment was that Simon Jones, and he was apologetic, and he's one of the great blokes too, by the mm-hmm. way, Simon Jones. Yeah. He's a fantastic human being and one of the great blokes to, to actually play against because he did have that real Welsh spirit and, and by gee, he, we, he would take no prisoners. Um, but what I found at the tail end of giving him a bit of a serve and him coming up you know, and, and, and sort of saying, I'm sorry, even though he did hit me, mm-hmm. um, was, was the whole English side for once, they were on his case and, and and were really taking sides with him and there was that presence around them that that thought that that you thought as a, an imposing player you know on uh, English conditions that that we mean business here this particular test match series you know so that that to me was sort of and the fact is to just carry that on a little bit more you had a great friendship that was starting to forge and emerge um, between Jones Harmison Hoggard and Andrew Flintoff mm-hmm. and anything that you look at within any champion side you've got to have these champion units that sit in the side of it you know for Australia it was Warren Gillespie Lee McGrath um, that was you know working as a foursome to just take any other side down uh, from a batting lineup you know like myself and Justin Langer and Ricky Ponning were the kind of engine room of the side through our particular era you mess with one of us you mess with all of us and we're on your case if you do so. So for the first time, I just felt this sort of positive gearing towards the relationships within the English side. And for once, I sort of felt like the press, whilst they had their knives, you know, sharpening out amongst the tabloids that were going to be, 
you know, another public guillotining of, you know, the next captain of England or they had that edge to them after the first test match when we really crucified uh, England at the home of cricket. Absolutely. There was that, there was that feeling, but for once I sort of felt there was a bit more to this side than what I'd felt in the past. Well, let, let, let's, let's reiterate the fact that the, you, you, Australia won the first test um, by 180 runs. And in many ways, we thought, here we go again. Um, mm. The second test is bookended by two extraordinary events, both in their own way equally important. <laughs> Glenn McGrath stands on a, on a cricket ball, turns his ankle. Yep. Um, yep. And six, uh, five, uh, five days later, Michael Kasprovich, after that astonishing and agonizing last wicket partnership where Agony. Australia came within within uh, you know one stroke of winning the second test and it would all been different but it wasn't I mean the, the, this is one of the great and bizarre test matches wasn't it mm, it was it was just the, the, as you say bookended is a really perfect summary of of the series because had Glenn McGrath played that particular match I would have thought that there would have been a very similar result you know, as to the first test. He was just on top of his game. He was at his brilliant best. He loved uh, the English conditions, and uh, I think it would have gone Australia's way. But, you know, in some ways, as, as a sporting lover, ahead of just being a part of a, you know, a fantastic team and a, and a fantastic series, it was great that it played out the way it was because, you know, it what it did is it introduced test cricket um, to... to Something which we relive um, and we love about the game that 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 pure emotion and that that distance and that that test of time throughout a series and that possibility of of a result maybe not going the way and all of the reasons why you love Test cricket was right there in front of us during that series and in our faces and I'll never forget sitting next to Ricky Ponting for about an hour and a half, you know, like each one of us taking times to um, to get up and rotate just a very brief walk across to the um, to the centre area where the the, uh, the the coffee house was, uh, and getting a cup of coffee and chewing nervously on our fingernails and whatever else we could put in our mouth at the time. Probably some of those beautiful biscuits that they serve up at Edgbaston mm-hmm. Cricket Ground. But I mean, we were on the edge of our seats for too long. It was agony. It was emotional. It was it was just it was horrific, you know. And then. The expectations were that we were going to lose, but then over that 50-run partnership between Lee and Michael Kasperwich, the expectations suddenly almost turned to the other way when we got sort of 12, 11 runs out. The the momentum was just shifting towards Australia. And then when the decision was made to, to dismiss Michael Kasperwich, it was just like a pack of cards that just, just tumbled down on the ground. I know. It's, it's, we it's, it's, it's almost better to lose by 100 than to lose by two, isn't it? Just about. But you know what it did do? It, it, it was nothing more than the making of a fantastic tournament and wonderful relationships because who will ever forget you know, the Andrew Flintoff moment when he crouched over the top of a Brett Lee who was crushed in defeat, yeah. this wonderful champion, and yet this beautiful moment of humility and this, this description of what it meant, you know, to be an athlete and to have that, that great compassion within a particular match where, where you embrace each other as, as human beings from two different countries, one on the wrong side of the result. But to me, that forged the next 
at least the next two Ashes series. Yes. But certainly in that moment, it, it forged this wonderful unison of the old guards coming together for this particular 2005 uh, series, which was just magnificent. Yeah, and I'll just remind people that at the third test, um, Brett Lee somewhat got his revenge when he and Glenn McGrath saw out incredibly uh, an amazing draw for Australia. I remember the Australian celebrations on the balcony very well. England won the fourth test um, uh, uh, and with Ashley Giles and Matthew Hoggett eventually seeing them through mm. the final test at the Oval. Somewhat anticlimactically, I thought was a draw. I happened to be lucky enough to be on the ground for the, uh, the, the, the rather strange business of the umpires coming and going and looking at light and all the rest of it. You scored 138, and the, the, the series ended with, as I say, an, an, England, an English victory. Reverse swing was all the rage. In, in, incredibly, that, uh, that extraordinary 2005 series is followed, and it's one of the beauties of when the schedule of, uh, of cricket in the globe uh, works this way. Australia get an immediate chance for re- revenge. A great Australian so team. So England. Uh, they do indeed. They do indeed. A, a great Australian team, a team full of what you would describe as champions, many of them coming to, mm. let's be fair, the end of their illustrious careers. Can you remember, the? apart from being bitten by a dog, and you might want to tell me about that as well, can you remember the build-up yes, to the, to, to the five, six uh, Ashes series in Australia and what you expected? Well, we we um, we were obviously very disappointed with our both individually and collectively. I mean, there was there was a couple of key performers. Warney was a great performer in England um, over that 2005 series, but there was a lot of guys, including myself, that just didn't hit the mark during that series. And look, I don't know really what it was. Um, co- collectively, there was a few things that were sort of going around. Um, you know that we we had had this this kind of incredible run of of um great form and this is individually and collectively maybe we were a little complacent i never think that we've got our ashes series um preparation uh in a row you know and in line i I don't think that we're actually in england long enough ahead of a test match series we get distracted with 2020 tournaments and you know too much one day cricket it just doesn't work i know you know, having played numerous seasons of county cricket just selfishly as an opening batsman, it wouldn't be until the first month was behind me that I started to really, you know, get my game in order and start to play great cricket in England. Um, so just time and lots of game. 93 was probably the the last of the era of cricket which arrived and had a four-month season there. Mm-hmm. You know, that's that's decadent time for a cricketer now. It's as a commodity, you're wheeled into the next location, clicked into a particular series. You play back-to-back test matches with three days in between each one, and then you're flown and clicked into another series across the world. And, and that's just a commercial reality of the way that scheduling is run um, at ICC. So on this kind of 10-year rotational policy that that uh, the, the, the cricket program occupies. So, look, I think more than anything, we just weren't ready to play our best cricket. Um, we were a bit green. Um, there was a little bit of sort of tension off the field as well. There was a few wives that, you know, and, and guys that were just having a few stresses. They've been on the road together for a long time, yeah. I guess, more than anything, and that happens. Um, there was a, a very close connection with, with Warney and guys like Andrew Flintoff and... Um, and Kevin Peterson as well, and that sort of caused some friction internally. But generally, look, they were all just, you know, excuses more than anything. Um, And this side, as you said, was just such a well-performed side, knew all of the battles that it had together and and just got home and had this boot camp, which... (laughs) 
which, uh, you know, I laugh about now, but it wasn't a particularly nice thing. It was really to test out exactly, uh, you know, were we committed to each other and were we, were we wanting to get on with business uh, or not, really. And what came out of a five-day extensive uh, militant-style camp um, in the middle of winter um, with a number of key personalities uh, was, the fact, was the fact that, um, you know, we did want to do business together. We did love each other's company and we had the best interests of the team um, at our heart and we wanted to take revenge. I think that's the right word, yeah. um, actually. We wanted to take revenge on England because we'd been beat. We weren't happy about being beat. We, we believed that we were a better side, um, but we just had to put it together both, both as a partnerships, whatever that looked like, um, to mount that pressure on England that we knew that we were capable of doing um, to deliver really what was the outcome of 2006. Well, of course, the, the series opened with one of the... I guess it, it, along with Shane Warne's ball to um, to Mike Gatting, um, the, the so-called ball of the century, I guess mm. the next most famous individual delivery, uh, certainly in English-Australian uh, test cricket, is Harmison's opening ball, uh, which set the tone <laughs> um, when it hit uh, Flintoff a second slip. You were at the non-strikers mm. end, Matthew. What did you, what did you, was. Do you remember that? And you think, my God, what was that? Oh, I remember it like yesterday, but I think, look, at that particular time, we were so focused on, I mean, one ball's one ball. I mean, and cricket is a game of events. And he actually did follow it up in that same over, if you remember, um, an absolutely cracking delivery to Justin Langer that lifted him off his darling little feet. <laughs> and, he, uh, you know, his legs swung up like he was the he was first kiss sort of thing. And it just careered out and it fell safe and, you know, nothing was really made of it. But No, you're right. If it had been the second you, you ball to sell the series, uh, we wouldn't even be talking about it. But because it was the first one, it appears to have set the tone. And the tone, tone went on. I mean, let's be fair. Um, Australia wiped the floor with England uh, during that, that series. 5-0. Um, f- uh, massive, massive victories uh, and, a, and a whitewash the first one in Australia since two, 1920, which was also I followed. Was, uh, oh, sorry. Yeah, I, I think, well, I think that series was almost the perfect side for this, uh, perfect storm for this side. It had, uh, it just had all the right ingredients to make, to make a really solid professional group play at its absolute peak. You know, the McGraths, the, the, the Warns, the fact that they were they were potentially leaving um, the Test match arena and some of these uh, venues would be the last of their time, um, the fact that guys were under pressure um, to to perform, champions under pressure. I, I know personally, I went into that Test match um, feeling like you know what I've had a good couple of years here, but this could be my last series if I actually don't get my game face on here and play. And and as you said, even in the lead up to that game. Um, you know, I was running at my family property in Kingaroy and the first thing I realised when I got about three or four K out of the home block that I had a dog hanging off my leg and what I didn't realise is the fact that after I dropped to the ground and wondered why I couldn't walk or run that he'd torn straight across my Achilles and this was three weeks off yeah. out from the game. So, you know, we all have our various challenges when we go into these series but I had both form and also this uh, this really nasty uh, dog injury um, that I had to sort of overcome in the dying stages of our preparation. And uh, it wasn't really until 
um, the Melbourne test match that I started to get my game face on and started to get the volume of work under my belt and, and get my fitness and form back into play before I even started to arrive at the series. But thankfully, you know, there was enough guys to cover that. You know, it was often said of our group that if you didn't have a good day, there would be always someone having a very good day, you know. So a Ricky Ponning sort of coming to the stage or an Adam Gilchrist or or a... Um, or Damian Martin, you know that that those sort of those sort of environments where they're bringing the most out of your group were the perfect way to actually get this this dynamic, and and outstanding group of uh, of talents that, that, uh, that, on the same page. That outstanding group. I mean, I know you had retirements. The following year, you retained the World Cup. Um, in two thousand and 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 seven. I mean, another performance that um, is simply incredible in its perfection. I mean, you made uh, over 650 runs in the one-day series. Um, Four of the top 10 run scorers in the tournament were Australian. Four of the top six wicket takers were Australian. You were the one-day cricketer of the year. Glenn McGrath, who never who never had to walk to the to the centre to bat, um, won the series. Well, Thank ma- goodness. Was man- yeah, fair <laughs> enough. That was man of the series. Looking back on that Australian team you played in, the test team and the Australian one-day team that you played in, there's an argument that both, and it's a difficult argument, to, to, but there's an argument that both are the best one-day team and the best test team of all time. Well, look, it's a lovely sentiment, and it's something that uh, uh, it would be glorious to think that it would be an easy black-and-white kind of case. But the reality of it is is that these tremendously gifted and talented sides had such vastly different uh, individual and collective uh, backgrounds to overcome. You know, like during the war-torn eras, for example, how do you rate, like, your Invincibles players for Australia? That yes. 42 yes. series, yes. you know, where you've got, uh, you know, all sorts of challenging, desperate depression and war and, you know, uncovered wickets and, you know, this this maze of stuff that these players would have had to go through, including actually just travel, travel to destinations, um, which would have been gloriously fun, I would have thought, as well, like, Six months on a boat. Hello, how fun Hello. would that be? Yeah. But um, you know, to cut a long story short, you know, I think we're as good as we could have been. Anyway, you know, we 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 just we just believed in ourselves. We we loved playing together. We had these marvelous relationships which go way beyond the sporting field. And I'll just if I can finish on the World Cup, just yes. to give you a little yes. example of 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 what it, what these tournaments mean. The World Cup in in the West Indies in 2007 finished, obviously, in the dark. And I was petrified, not for the fact that we would have had to um, potentially, you know, lose the game or or have to restart the game, but petrified because my wife was actually due with our youngest son, Thomas. And the West Indies is a really, really long way away from home. And I was desperate to... have done everything I could have done to play a great World Cup series, but then I was desperate to come home and spend time with my wife and to see my 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 son born. Anyways, I was watching. Uh, this would have been now two days later. I was watching as the as the boys are, are sitting up on the bow of this enormous big uh, cruise ship, and they're bomb diving into the water. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I'm I'm now in the uh, the lounge ahead of. Uh, ahead of childbirth. I, I, this slips my mind what they call it, but sitting there watching this with no regrets, I might add, but I'm thinking, those mongrels, you know, yeah. how good a fun would that be? <laughs> um, but, you know, the, the, cricket is a great, it's a, it's a great part of your life, but 
it's it's not your life. Um, you know, beyond the sporting field, you know, I've had such a great and rich experience, whether that be on the land, um, through my faith, through my family, you know, through just living this great outdoors life, which I really enjoy, whether that be fishing or surfing and having the skills to, to do all of those things, you know, jump in a boat and, and go. Um, they're just, they just add weight to what I feel is a, such a privileged way of life, um, both in, living in Australia, but also having those opportunities, as I said, to play in these great grounds with these magic people up through Berry and, and through that sort of Lancashire League. Or over in the IPL, you know, three seasons of playing with Chennai Super Kings and it being like a home away from home. Or my mates in South Africa who every time I ring, you know, are already sort of shaping the boards and will arrive at the airport when I come. In fact, while we're on air here, I just got a text from a guy that uh, works with Oakley in in, uh, Cape Town. And he was asking the question of, mate, when are you coming up? And he sends me these waves of Jeffrey's Bay and just sort of saying, you know, like, come over it's pumping you know like it's so i've just had this beautiful life (laughs) yep i've had a beautiful life and cricket's been such an enormous part of of the i call it the 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 ultimate dean of faculty you know to have this uh have this game which which sort of sits in this authoritative position which connects people globally which has this participation and this unique bond especially between australia and england you know, where we, we come to head, but we also you know, absolutely love sharing a big pint of, you know, whatever the best bitter mm-hmm. is. I particularly like that Feakston's bitter. I love that stuff. <laughs> um, but, you know, there's just this, this wonderful, rich sense of, of two countries with an am- amazing connection, you know, through our political system, but also just through our backgrounds. And, uh, you know, long may it exist because, you know, we, we are very, very privileged to be broadcasters as well, I might add, and yeah. to share and, and tell these magic stories. Um, it must have been quite a, a, a decision to decide to retire. What Because you're still playing. You, you've played some more, mm. you know, plenty more cricket up till very recently, as you say, in mm. the IPL and all the rest of it. What, what was behind your decision? What finally made you say, you know what, I've, I, I've done enough of this. It's time to move on to new pastures. Well, you know, I was sitting out the back um, of my property and I live on, fortunately, um, a couple of acres that are right in the centre of Brisbane. And uh, I have a, a, a fondness for growing um, lots of stuff, all, mm-hmm. all sorts of stuff. So I was sitting in the middle of this big tomato bush and I was with my daughter and uh, I said to Grace, I think I just want to come home and stay, um, Gracie. She says, what do you reckon about that? She says, oh, no, Dad. She says, no, nah, you can't retire. I said, what do you mean I can't retire? And they said, well, Melbourne, test match, boxing day. Santa, you know, if you retire, Santa won't come and visit us. <laughs> oh, dear. Yeah, so, so, so she'd thought that somehow that Melbourne test match, that's the only place that Santa Claus would actually come and see her. She'd, she'd link the two experiences together. She'd link the two together. <laughs> oh. But then I came up to the house, you know, like, and, and Stephen Moore said something which I, I believe is very accurate. He said, Matty, uh, you know, if you're thinking of retirement, you've already retired. Yeah. And I actually believe that, that during that last summer against South Africa, I was starting to think about retirement more than I was thinking about the actual game itself and and I was in effect retired and and I also felt that it was kind of the the coming of the next age um you know seeing someone like Michael Clark start to force his way up the the leadership situation mm-hmm. um seeing sort of the change of change of guard in terms of 
you know, looking around the change rooms and you wouldn't be seeing Shane Warne, um, Jason Gillespie, uh, you, you know, you'd be seeing Pato and, and Pete Siddle and, you know, also really fabulous blokes, but of a different generation. Yes, yes. Um, and so culturally I felt like I'd really added as much as I possibly could to the group and the City Test match um, was just the perfect time, I think, just to go, this is going to close, I've got to close the chapter of this side of my life. I, I, I was ready to, to finish. And I, and I came directly into my wife after that small exchange with my daughter that I just explained mm-hmm. and said, love, I, I think it's ready for me. I'm ready to retire. And she said, are you sure? And I said, yeah, I, I'm, I'm as sure as you can be. Like, how do you give up something you absolutely love? Yeah. Um, but I guess once you sort of set it in, into that sort of process, it gathers its own momentum. So, you know, I sat down and I, and I thought carefully about the kind of people that I would want to tell and in which particular order and, and how I sort of, you know, would go about, you know, just just respectfully um, bowing to the game and just saying thank you very much. You know, it's been a, a wonderful experience. Um, I, I really wanted my family around me as well because it is a very emotional time. Um, in your life, letting go of something you're so passionate about. It's its almost like a grieving process in a lot of ways because the game has given you so much, but it's also its just also been enjoyed so much and, and it's like losing your best mate in some ways. Um, so, yeah, I just, I felt like the time was right and I felt very comfortable with the decision and I really, really enjoyed saying goodbye to not only cricket in this country, but saying goodbye to Test Cricket right across the globe. I really appreciate the amount of support that I got within the media. You know, friends that that, that have been associated with, with the struggle of my Test Cricket, who I, who I learned a very valuable lesson, and that was this, that you treat people really well consistently because on the way up, you know, they... they they will look after you and on the way down they'll look after you as well and and so that was a really a really wonderful value system to learn well it, it was an incredible um career one that ended with uh, even the australian prime minister then kevin rudd congratulating you let me just remind people um what we're talking about here i mean we've heard a great deal of you about you as a person matthew which i think is very important but let's just do the cricket statistics 6825 runs in 103 tests an average of over 50 161 odis over 6000 runs there um you broke the individual test record score of 380 i think we should also mention that uh, your partnership with Justin Langer may or may not be the greatest ever opening partnership. It's certainly statistically right up there with that between uh, Gordon Greenwich and uh, Desmond Haynes, the West Indian legends. Um, It is just the most extraordinary um, set of figures. And as I say, for me, Matthew, the idea that uh, you you might have played, if you'd been a, a different nationality, you might have played another four, five, six years of test cricket only goes to show um, just how much you achieved in the time that was available to you at the very top of cricket. Thank you very much for coming to the end of our time. It's been wonderful, and I have to say slightly humbling, to spend the last two hours in your presence. But I'm afraid that is it for tonight's edition of My Sporting Life with Matthew Hayden. For more details on the My Sporting Life series, you can log on to talksport.com. 
If you'd like to catch up with all the many previous editions of the programme, you can do that at iTunes. Our thanks to both Danny Kelly and Matthew Hayden for the last 90 minutes or so. And don't forget, we'll be releasing weekly episodes of the My Sporting Life series with big names such as Clive Lloyd, Curtly Ambrose and uh, Sir Andrew Strauss all to come. As well as this, the Cricket Collective returns on Tuesday. Neil Manthorpe and Steve Harmison looking ahead to England's T20 World Cup campaign and they will be joined by 2010 winner Ryan Sidebottom as well as hearing exclusively from the England bowler Stuart Broad and former T20 captain of course. So keep an eye out for that. But this has been Following On. The Following On podcast is proudly sponsored by Barbados Tourism. And this is your gentle reminder that Barbados is the best place to be a cricket fan. With eight matches from the ICC Men's T20 Cricket World Cup Series taking place in Barbados this summer, including the final, you can experience the summer of a lifetime by booking today. Aside from immersing in world-class cricket in the sunshine, Barbados is the dream destination for all travel enthusiasts. It is where adventure meets paradise, the culinary capital of the Caribbean, and better still, the birthplace of rum. If you are keen to unite with cricket fans across the globe for what is set to be an unforgettable summer, then head to visitbarbados.org forward slash cricket today. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavourless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm. 